This week on Writers Inc. I get given 18 months basically to write a book, which sounds like quite a while, but every year I make a radio series for the BBC, which becomes a podcast. I mean, it's, a, it's not a lot, it's only four, four episodes, but there is no, it's, it's on a BBC budget, so there are no researchers, there are no writers, it is all just me. So that takes me a couple of months, and I'm also on tour for three to four months a year. And so of every 18 months I'm given to write a book, I only have nine. Um, not because I spend the rest of the time, you know, filing my nails on a chaise long uh, while consuming violet creams, but because I, I am always out doing another thing. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. J.P. Reinbush. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. And happy couple days after Christmas, everybody. Yeah, happy Even, holidays. Yeah. Ho, so, ho, so who, holy hell, I had a great Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you're still celebrating. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I should be still celebrating, but yeah, I'm recovering. Nice. Yeah, me too. I had yeah. three Christmas dinners. That's good. Oh, that, that's the worst. So like, did you leave home and like have to go from one house to another? Like that kind of Well, thing? it was the 24th, 25th, 26th. So they were three uh, days in a row. Yeah. Sounds like the title of a rom-com. I had three Christmas dinners. Yeah. Three Christmas dinners <laughs> and a funeral. And what's in the <laughs> There funeral. was a funeral. There was a funeral. <laughs> there was a funeral. <laughs> I, think, I think Hugh Grant has to be in it if you add that. Yeah. Long after he's dead, they'll reanimate his his moldering corpse so that he can be in these rom-coms. So. Like Weekend at Bernie's? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> we had a great... So my wife started planning this Christmas dinner in like October uh, and buying all the things for it and, and having them scattered around our house. And so it all culminated with her family staying with us on the Friday before Christmas and us having like a multi-course meal, opening gifts... Uh, she wanted to do a, a sampling of, of alcohol from around the world. So we did that. I was a wreck the next day. Uh, <laughs> I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of recovering from it. But it's a good Christmas. Yeah. For, the, the bits are. Kevin remember. got as far as Uruguay and he's, he's just down for the count. <laughs> <laughs> what are we on? Q? I don't know. I had no idea by the time it was done. Did you get your eggnog, JD? <laughs> I'm still working on the eggnog. I, it's fun. I, I've been adding it to my my workout uh, smoothie, which is probably not the best thing to do. Because um, like honestly, like I, I don't like the taste of it by itself. Like it's too strong. But like it, you know, it, in my workout smoothie, it actually tastes pretty nice. It gives a little bit of a kick. And like I, I follow like a bunch of you know like like people on just like workout videos type stuff on TikTok. And like one of them is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And like, if you ever watch this guy make his workout smoothie, it's the funniest thing. Cause he's got schnapps in there. He's got Goldschlager. He's got Jägermeister. Um, and you know, he's obviously doing something right. Cause the guy's like coming up on 80 years old and he still looks like the Terminator. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to follow that advice and throw a little whiskey eggnog in my, my smoothie and see if it works. Yeah. That's not the raw egg uh, drink I was expecting. So I have a raw egg in there too. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, you you had a funeral, didn't you? Like you sent me. You need to explain oh, the, the picture. Oh gosh. Okay. So, <laughs> I was at my niece's house, and there was a story. <laughs> so, there was a reenacting of the movie Seven with my niece shaking. <laughs> what's a in small the box? Box yelling. What's, what's in, in the, the box? box? And her dad laughed until he realized what it was. Spoiler alert: It was her dead hamster. And they were oh. waiting to tell her. Whoa. All right. So her, her hamster died and they just put it in a box. They put and, like, it in a it box. Dad thought mom did something with it. Mom thought dad did something with it. Sister cleaned up and put it in a drawer. Youngest sister found it. So we had a hamster funeral on Christmas. Dad in the garden with a spade. I did take a picture of the box, which I so, don't judge so they me. Lo- but it was funny, but awful. They lost a dead hamster in a box in the house somewhere. They did. Like yeah. misplaced. The dead hamster. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Each each uh, parent thought the other one had disposed of it. Nobody had disposed of it. <laughs> it was put in a drawer. 
So, so we had a funeral awful. on uh, Christmas Eve, uh, buried Lily the hamster in the backyard. <laughs> Who will forever haunt that house. This is why I hate clutter in the house. If you have clutter in the house, you, you lose dead hamsters. I, I feel like it. <laughs> it's true. Oh, okay. yeah, it's true. I can trace all my dead hamsters back yeah. to being lost due to clutter. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, cl- clutter, clutter is evil. <laughs> this will be in like JD's next nonfiction about cleaning. Oh, my, my wife <laughs> and I, number we, one. my number wife one. and I butt heads on this all the time. Cause like I could live in like one of those, is, is it Sweden where like they have like literally nothing on the counters and it's like all, yeah. all clean lines. Yeah. And yeah, like I, I, I could totally live like that. Like literally nothing on any surface. Um, and my wife is the exact opposite. She comes into the house and like her purse gets tossed on a chair, you know, shoe ends yeah. up over here over here you know just stuff everywhere and like our daughter is kind of a mix in between like you know she she picks up after herself and then she goes and yells at mom when she leaves stuff out so i guess she's kind of leaning into my camp um but yeah but i, I hate clutter oh we've got a picture of the dead hamster in Don't a box judge nice. me. <laughs> picture. is that oh, pledge that's a can of that's, pledge next that's to a it can of pledge next to the dead hamster that, yeah were you guys that's, going for like a viking funeral kind of thing I, yeah we're gonna light it on fire and send it out <laughs> That that picture needs to be next year's Christmas card for Perfect. your family. That's the, that's that, the, that's shot. the picture. Yep, that's, that's the one. Oh man! <laughs> Season's greetings. All right. Before we get into the news, I, I kind of stumbled into you know it's it's the, the end of the year, and I was getting an email reminder from my accountant asking me for charity stuff. Like he wants to know what I've done for charities for the year, so because it has to be done by December thirty first. Um, so I did a new one this year, and I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes. But I found a link through the American Library Association where you can buy books and send them to prisoners in prison. And it basically it takes you to an Amazon wish list page. So you can just pick whatever you want. You load it up in the Amazon cart and it ships it to the this one particular address. But um, you know, so you could probably send your own books if you wanted to do that. But uh, they want they want specific books. So I'm, I'm sending them what, what they want. I loaded up almost four grand worth of coloring books and crossword puzzles and this and that and something for a guy named Chuck. Like in the note, it literally said, this is a special order for Chuck. <laughs> I have no idea who this guy is, but Merry Christmas, Chuck. You've got it. Your, your book is on its way. Um, so yeah we'll put the link to that in the show notes it's a cool way to you know you can spend five bucks if you want to you can you can load it up if you want to do that too yeah all right jp what is in the news all right uh first up in the news uh indie author accused of plagiarism uh so a prominent indie author who we will leave unnamed for this podcast has been accused of extension extensive plagiarism in their self-published works in a reddit post uh this author who has had a significant presence in the self-publishing community allegedly used material from other published works without attribution in their novels uh examples of alleged um Plagiarism includes similarities in phrases and descriptions uh, with works by other authors and content from online sources. Uh, so I, I wanted to highlight this, even though I don't really want to say the author's name until we get verification here. But I wanted to highlight this because this is a lot of work that was being presented and there's a lot of evidence. And it is uh, very clear that a lot of this is plagiarism. So don't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, that's, do that. It's been interesting to watch this unfold. Uh especially knowing the parties involved and it's uh, i'm 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 almost speechless about it because i i I don't understand why this would happen and at first i thought well i know this person sometimes uses ghost writers so i thought well maybe they maybe the ghost writers did it well it turned out though that like some of his first original books that i know he wrote uh were included in this so yeah i just can't I just can't get my head around it. Like, why, why would you do it? And why would you continue to do it? (laughs) It just shocks me. Like if you plagiarize, someone will always find out. Um, You know, I I, uh, used to be a GA and you can spot this stuff, right? Like we got one in, I got Mm -hmm. one turned in by a nice person. Unfortunately, it said, please click here for more info, (laughs) which like... (laughs) spawned me to look more into it but if you plagiarize people will always find out especially now with all the software that's out there well that's the thing if you go through the reddit post what this person basically did is they took the first look um pages from from this individual's titles and kind of honed in on any any sentence that just seemed a little flowery or just you know was where the writing just kind of stood out and then just took that sentence did a cut and paste into google just to see what would come up and you know obviously stumbled into other titles with that exact same sentence and you know this wasn't 
like three or four words chained together. I mean, this is, you know, definitely something lifted from, yeah. you know, from A and placed into B. Um, if it's all true, like I, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. I haven't personally gone back and looked at these sentences in this individual's books, you know, to make sure they actually exist there. You know, this could be somebody with a vendetta. There's a lot of different reasons for this kind of thing showing up. The reason I honestly want to talk about it, though, is because I do know people do this sort of thing, um, you know, and, and you know, you, you see a nice sentence or a sentence sticks, you know, you, you, cop, you know, some people do it intentionally. They, they grab it and they put it in their own title. A lot of people do this subconsciously. You know, you read a book and three years later, you're writing something, a particular sentence just pops out of your head and you put it in there and you don't know that that sentence actually came from another book. Um, that kind of thing happens as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the AI stuff, I think also, you know, is going to be a factor in this, like moving forward because the ARs are, are trained on written data you know so they're taking these books that are already out there and and they're basically chopping them up so like if you're using ai to write your books there's a good chance that sentence that it just gave you you know came in whole or in part from from something else um and like christine just pointed out you know the software is coming to define this i mean this guy found it manually you know he typed it into google um and google spit out a result um software is coming that is going to probably do this automatically i imagine imagine you know amazon would would have something like it in place um you you know, the other red flag that jumped out at me is, you know, most people don't realize this, but if you read the terms of service for Google Books, um, when you upload your book, you're basically giving them the right to use the text from that book in their, their search results. So they've got a scanned copy of your entire novel available to Google, which is why this guy was able to find this stuff in the first place. So all kinds of, of red flags here, you know, whether it's true or not, but just, you know, a cautionary tale, I think everybody's got to watch out for. Yeah. Well, and just to throw this out there, don't just because the evidence looks damning doesn't mean it's telling the story you think it's telling either. And I'm not, I'm not going to try to make excuses for this. I'm not going to try to say that this is what's happening, but it, it's just is, you know, it could, it, it, it's just as likely that, you know, these, these, first of all, this person may be planting this stuff. Uh, other people may be plagiarizing from this writer. I mean, things like that do happen. So we, we shouldn't jump to any conclusions, mm-hmm. but it does look bad. I, I, I won't. Yeah. Won't sugarcoat that. It does look bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think part of it is, you know, we want to report on on new and recent news. We also want to keep certain names out of it until certain bigger groups than us are able to verify this information. So um, this is one of those things where uh, at the very least, you can check this out on your own and you can uh, learn how to not do this, <laughs> how to not plagiarize, because there are plenty of examples regardless of if they're real or not. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, next up in the news, uh, Lightning Source finds new areas to grow. So uh, Lightning Source, which is a part of the uh, Ingram content group, is celebrating its 25th anniversary with significant shift now increasing um, serving the largest traditional publishers, uh, including the big five. Uh, The pandemic highlighted benefits for Lightning Source's uh, print-on-demand capabilities, and this led to uh, greater use by those large publishers. And now there is a new large print program, and it emphasizes this total total cost benefits in digital printing um, and a combination with traditional methods. Yeah, I like I like to see this kind of thing a lot, too. I, I, you know, they're not the only one out there that's doing this. There's a few companies like Lightning Source, and they're all kind of chasing the, the same thing. Um, they're becoming more efficient, you know, which allows us, you know, anybody that's doing print on demand to be able to create a book for a lower cost. Um, you know, one of the, the most incredible things I've seen recently is the ability to print you know, a book that has color pages in it. Um, but, you know, let's say you've got a 400 page book and three of those pages are in color. You're only paying for three pages now in color, you know, rather, you know, a year ago, if you wanted to do that same thing through lightning source, you had to pay for the entire novel as a color print, um, which has made it cost prohibitive. Um, so they're all, they're all chasing these, these different things. Um, you know, if you read between the lines here too, now you've got the traditional publishers also looking at print on demand, um, which mm-hmm. might be the bigger story there yeah. because, you know, they, up until now they, they print in bulk, you know, it's, it's yeah. more cost effective. I mean, I can't go into numbers here, but like I'm doing it with my latest book through Simon and Schuster and I'm seeing the kind of price, you know, print cost that they, they get by printing in bulk. And it's insane how much cheaper it is when you do large numbers. Um, and those large numbers, I mean, when I say a large number, I mean like 10,000 copies, 5,000 copies, you can still do that. Um, but when you start getting into like 40, 50, 60,000 copies, like you're printing for next to nothing. Um, but, you know, this, I think what this is telling me, you know, just reading between those lines is I think they're going to take a serious look at back catalog, um, you know, the titles that they haven't focused on in the previous years and figure out how to light a fire under those and print on demand, I think is going to be their entry point. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
I almost feel like, or I kind of hope that with this whole print on demand approach with traditional publishers that um, certain companies will start to quote unquote, legitimize the print on demand approach. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, reaching out to Barnes and Noble, for example, a uh, local one, and just having a couple local author books, we all have print on demand settings on Ingram. And so we get immediately denied. And so there's a lot of loops uh, to kind of get through to see if there's a different way to, to get those books in there. Um, and it's literally the only reason they said was it's the print on demand setting. And so we could easily switch it, but there's a big hit that a lot of people in, in this area just can't can't do. Um, so hopefully there's maybe something good that comes out of that as well. Yeah, it's interesting to see the big five using indie techniques uh, in this next work that we're going to talk about too. Do you think that has any effect on contracts? Because sometimes there's out when things are out of print, you know, in, in the contract. So is this going to change author contracts at all, do you think? I, I think it probably will, yeah, because um, you know they, they've kind of fallen back on eBooks as their you know catch-all. You know, while it's not out of print, the eBook is still available. Yeah. Um, you know, so language is you know at least in my contracts, I have language now that specifically says out of print. You know, from the print side, eBooks like everything is is separated um, to kind of make that distinction. So yeah, th this could keep that alive. Um, you know, the the one thing I see coming out of this that is probably a good thing is just it's going to really cut back on waste. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah. the way the process currently works is, you know, you, you print, you know, for a traditionally published book, let's say 30, 40, 50,000 copies, whatever their, their initial print run is, those get shipped out to all the stores. And then three, four weeks after that book comes out, whatever hasn't actually sold, a good chunk of those get returned to the publisher. Um, most of those are destroyed. You know, they purposely rip the cover off the book or they punch a hole in it to make sure that it's not resold. Like they specifically don't want to resell it, which I, I don't understand, you know, because there's a secondary market. They could put them out to the other bookstores there's other ways to get rid of those um, but instead they either end up in a landfill or you know some might get actually recycled but i think that's a much smaller percentage than what they they let on um, i think this is going to tighten that up too if it becomes the norm because uh, there is no reason you know for for that kind of waste to go through the expense and the time of, of creating all of those if, if we can get around it and i think this will help drive that cost down and make it efficient all right. Next in the news, um, I'm going to probably mispronounce his name, but Peich or Peich uh, touts new marketing efforts uh, in a letter to authors. So Hachette is enhancing its marketing strategies, including direct to customer sales uh, via its website, aiming to foster stronger connections between authors and readers. Um, the You Are a Be uh, Bookseller campaign focuses on digital retail, uh, where over half of um, Hachette book groups uh, sales occur using new tools to improve. Uh, online book presentation and drive those sales. Uh, so there's a lot of optimism uh, for the growth of digital audiobook sales, especially with that Spotify uh, entering into the market. And uh, uh, Hachette is actively combating book bans and promoting those diversity, uh, hopefully through this sort of new approach. By the yeah. way, Google says this is pronounced peach. Peach? Really? Thank you. Peach. Yeah. All right. But it's interesting to me to see uh, that even the big five are moving to direct sales. So I know <laughs> with yeah. this one and the lightning source, Isn't I'm like, what is going to be the difference between Tradpub and IndiePub in the future? I've been arguing for the past couple of years that there is no difference at this point. Like it's just, you know, you, you, you have slightly different paths and the way things work on uh, front end and back end. But for the most part, the, the methods are all the same at this point. The lines are blurry. I think one of the things that um, is also happening here, and like if you go to your favorite author's website, take a real close look at who actually created that website for them, because a lot of the big name authors don't actually own their own website. Their publisher actually creates it. So yeah. what this is allowing them to do as Hachette or as you know, Penguin Random House, as whoever, is to go out there and create an online store, a presence for that author, because they're basically going to say, well, we're handling your website. We'll go ahead and set up the print on demand section for you. Um, this is going to increase your sales. You know, it's a good thing for you. But, you know, they're going to be collecting a larger percentage of that revenue because they're setting up the, the whole deal. So I think this is them kind of getting a foothold in, into that world. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting to see just the you know, again, the, the shrinking planet, you know, like people are, you know, everybody's gravitating towards, gravitating towards you know, on demand. 
Um, it's, it's, I think over the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Um, I don't think things like Amazon are going to go away because that convenience factor is, you know, the reason they exist in the first place. And I can't see it ever becoming more convenient to go to an author's website to buy a book than, you know, to buy it direct from Amazon if you're already there buying other things. Um, but where you are going to see this pickup, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when you're on Facebook, you know, there's going to be a direct buy button and you're going to be able to buy that book directly on Facebook without leaving the platform. And that's going to be done through the author's own, own setup. Um, so yeah, interesting time. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I set that up recently, um, hooking up my own merch store to Facebook. And so they kind of communicate to each other and you just tag your photo with whatever product it is and they can buy it right off of Amazon without leaving it. And it's, it's really handy. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. The, the only one I've had a, I had trouble with so far is TikTok because they just, they can't set up a pre-order, um, not direct. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you, you reroute to Amazon or something, you can get away with it, but they don't have the ability to collect pre-orders yet, but I'm sure that's coming. Yeah. Uh, we have an update. Uh, last week we talked about the Tolkien estate, uh, and this week they won the court order to destroy the fans Lord of the Rings sequel. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> California judge ruled that, uh, Demetrius Polychron's off- unauthorized sequel to J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, uh, violated copyright pr- uh, protections. Therefore, Polychron is barred from distributing that book and must destroy all copies. Well, now I want one. Yeah, I've got a whole shelf of rare books. I want to put this one up there. Um, yeah. That's uh, again, this guy should have never done it in the first place. But just imagine having to sit there and you know put all your books on a big pile and light a match because that's essentially yep. what they're they're telling him yeah. to do. I'll send him but the pledge. stones on, on this guy though, like the because <laughs> yeah. it wasn't just. Correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but it wasn't just that he wrote a book that was that was violating the the copyright of the. Tolkien estate. He also mm-hmm. sued them and like yep. Amazon and others, right? Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he did. Yeah, this this, this guy. I mean, come on, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's a hell of a name too, Demetrius Polychron. Sounds like somebody who who would have the cojones to do exactly this sort of thing. I'm gonna put this guy on a coffee mug and a t-shirt. He's my <laughs> he's my new hero. This episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie-cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level, so you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers, Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is J.D. Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com slash JD to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. And on that note, JD, who is up this week? This week, we've got Natalie Haynes. Natalie's the author of eight books, including A Thousand Ships, which was a national bestseller and was shortlisted for the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction. Her latest novel is called Divine Might and releases January 2nd next year. Um, geez, a couple days from now. Here she is, Natalie Haynes. So I'd like to ask about how you got started writing. Oh, um, I guess I've probably always written one way or another. When I was an undergraduate, I was a stand-up comic. I was a stand-up comedian for Footlights, um, the comedy society at Cambridge University, which provided you with a reasonable chunk of Monty Python, with Hugh Laurie, with Emma Thompson, um, with John Oliver, um, uh, with whom I overlapped there. And so I was writing stand-up right from my late teens. and then I sort of moved sideways a bit into writing op-ed for the London Times and then the Independent. Um, and then um, I, I started writing books because I wanted to make something that was a bit less ephemeral, I guess. I wanted to um, write things that had a longer, I mean, I hesitate to say shelf life because it feels like a pun, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Th- yeah, I love stand-up and I still love performing. Um now but it it only exists in the time that you make it you know that's that's its only existence and that's beautiful and wonderful but it's not 
sufficient for me now. So I like being able to combine books which feel like they have some longevity to them and performance which feels like it's just for that audience, just for that night. I love the combination. Yeah. So you still do stand up then? That's something you still Mm. participate in occasionally? I wouldn't call it stand up anymore, although other people do. I perform. um, I'm on kind of perpetual tour in the UK and, uh, and elsewhere talking about the subjects of my book. So I'm doing a tour about goddesses, of course, at the moment. Um, And I guess I would not call it stand-up because its primary function isn't to get a laugh. Um, It's probably, you know, like a really funny lecture, but it looks a lot like stand-up. So I completely understand why other people um, call it that. And my show on the BBC here in the UK is called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. So obviously it's a double meaning, stands up for as in defends, but also stands up for does stand up on the subject of. Um, and so you can again see, you know, it's, it's recorded with a live audience. You can see why that blurring occurs and I'm partly responsible for it. So yeah, no, I wouldn't call it stand up because stand up is a really tough job. Um, but it's it's a really fun kind of monologue, I guess. Nice. And so do you think that translates into your writing, like that kind of voice? Do you think it's Definitely. maybe different than someone who doesn't have that background? I'd love to hear about that and how you think that influences your writing. Very definitely. Um, certainly my nonfiction um, voice is is pretty close to my own and my performing voice, again, pretty close to my own. So the interesting point actually comes at the moment where I start to build the show, the live show, because uh, I'm always doing it right down to the wire. Obviously, I do everything on time except create live shows. It's the only thing I because the moment that you kind of crystallize it is the moment that there's no there's no way of doing it a different way. You know, it feels so devastating. So I always properly run it down. Um, and I guess then I and only then do I notice there are stories which will work in the book, but not on stage. And there are stories I'll find on stage which I could never have made work in the book. Um and so they do differ, but there's a huge overlap. With the fiction, it's not it's not quite the same. The talks that I write and perform to go with the novels, obviously you don't want to kind of give away the entire novel, um, but also brutally my novels are usually quite sad <laughs> and um, my live shows are usually quite fun. Um, and so generally they have a, a more tangential relationship. So I might spend, as I did with the talk for Stoneblind, I spent the time talking about artistic sources for the most part of about Medusa and Gorgons and Gorgonea and so on, um, and responses to those artistic sources. But the actual kind of plot of the book, I spent very little time on, in fact, zero time on, um, because I obviously I want people to read the book as a book and I want them to see the live show as a live show. So they relate to one another, but but they aren't quite the same. And it is, I, I, you would think I would know by now, you know, what was going to work in one context and what would work in another. And I'm often wrong, um, even still. So, uh, you know, there are times when you think, oh, this is just a bit too sad or too serious. And actually it provides a really beautiful kind of texture to the performance and people really go with it. And you're like, God, I would never have thought that would work. And other times I think, oh, this is an absolute shoe and I can never land it. And I don't always know why, you know, I'm as as experienced a performer as most, I made my living as a stand-up comic for 12 years. So you would think that I would always be on top of it, but there are still times when it surprises me. And every single show has a joke in that I don't get. <laughs> and the the one at the moment, I'm like, why? I don't think I can't. It will actually kind of destroy the magic if I pause to go, just explain to me now what you're laughing at, because I don't know. But it's good, I think. It adds to the mystery. So, yes. Oh, that's amazing. So... I believe your first book that came out was a children's novel. Is that correct? Mm, That's right. Called The Great Escape, Um, a title I didn't like because um, there is already a very famous film called The Great Escape, starring, of course, Steve McQueen, um, on whom all right-minded adults uh, had a crush when they were (laughs) a less right-minded young woman. Um, And uh, and so, yeah, I I was worried it would get lost because its title was impossible to search for. And I think that's pretty well what happened. It it still has a few loyal readers. Um, It has structural issues. I'll tell you that for nothing. I would write it a lot better now. But, um, you know, it was a a way of starting. I had the idea for a story that was definitely a children's book. Um, But I don't know if I was a sort of um, a natural children's writer, Uh, certainly not at the time. You know, I did a, a bit of promotional work for it and it was like oh I do actually quite like talking to kids and I was sort of surprised by it um and now I have nieces so I'm less surprised I spend quite a lot of time talking to children but um at the time I wrote that which was right 16 years ago can that be Mm -hmm. true Uh, it was published in the UK um then that wasn't part of my life yet um so yeah I I spent a lot more time after that thinking about structure and the shape of how I would write later novels um 
but uh yeah I'm glad it exists yeah my mom says I always I'm always really kind of dismissive of it um because I I don't think it's good enough and perhaps she's right but uh yeah it did some things well but other things oh, you know you have to learn by doing don't you oh absolutely right you know, that's all there is you learn with every book and so you did children's yeah. and then non-fiction and then adult yes I wanted to write a novel yeah. um next and there was just it was the same time as the financial crisis happened it was um great escape came out in 2007 and then I wanted to write a novel well I did write a manuscript for a novel in 2007-8 but I just couldn't sell it um because there was absolutely no market for debut authors doing anything even remotely um non-genre and so it felt to me maybe it just wasn't a good enough book I don't know um, I have resisted the um, urgings of people to publish it subsequently because I think it, if it wasn't good enough when I wasn't successful, it isn't good enough now as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, so I wrote it and, and I couldn't sell it. And it was a long, very drawn out process. It was very painful. Um, but at the same time, I had a weekly column in the newspaper and I wrote at their behest, I wrote a column about uh, modern politicians and which ancient politicians or um, characters you could sort of map them onto and it was sort of jokey but fun um, at least that was the idea but you know it was reasonably serious minded it was like well this is you know the point of contact between this person and this person um, and I had huge fun doing it and it was just one of those pieces that ran in the letters pages for weeks afterwards with people writing in this Ms. Ames <laughs> appears to believe and you're like oh here we go um, and so you know they kind of argued the toss with each other for, for quite a while <laughs> Um, and it made it clear anyway that there was a market for that kind of book. And so I wrote a nonfiction book about largely ancient Greece and Rome and the modern world and how, you know, we can find parallels. But my heart was in writing a novel, which is which is what I had wanted to do, had tried to do and failed. And I hate to fail, you know, long term. I don't mind in the short term. That's fair enough. That just proves you were trying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, long term, it doesn't suit me. So once Ancient Guide was out, I went I went back to writing fiction. So I published The Amber Fury in the UK in 2014. It was called The Furious when it came out in the US. Um, but unless you personally know my mum, I'm pretty sure you haven't got a copy. Um, and uh, and then Children of Jocasta and then Ships. And having written three quite harrowing novels in a row, uh, they are different kinds of harrowing, but they are, to, to their author anyway, they were all pretty, uh, they contain pretty traumatic imagined things. I sort of felt like I needed to recover. And so I wrote Pandora's Jar basically as a, that's my recovery is that I get to go and look at brilliant, cool things in the ancient world and then tell you about them. But I don't have to imagine them from the inside, which is where the difficulty arises in terms of equanimity. Um, and so at that point, I, I mean, I, I was really, really fragile after doing Ships. And it seems very strange now because it, it changed my life. You know, Ships was the book that smashed through all the barriers that were that were in front of me or that it felt that were in front of me. Um, and it was a big success in the States. It was a big success in the UK. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize. So it it really did change the way people looked at me. And certainly it changed the crucially numbers of people who bought my books. Um, but I, I had to recover from it. Um, melodramatic, as I know that sounds. And so Pandora was the way of doing that. Um, and then I said from then on, I would alternate novel and nonfiction, novel and nonfiction, so that I would... Um, I miss being inside other people's minds when I'm only writing nonfiction and I'm really ready now having done Divine Might last year into this year to, to write another novel. I've, I've really missed it, but I have to, I have to alternate them. Otherwise I just go crazy. So what is that process like for you alternating between fiction and nonfiction? Do you just work at one at a time or you yes. kind of, you saw your single project? <laughs> I wish I were, but every, every year, I have I get given 18 months basically to write a book, which sounds like quite a while, but every year I make a radio series for the BBC, which becomes a podcast. Um, and that takes, I mean, it's a, it's not a lot. It's only four four episodes, so it's short, although next year will will be eight episodes. Um, but there is no, it's it's on a BBC budget, so there are no researchers, there are no writers, it is all just me um doing all of it. So it is tough. It's really tough um getting it all done. So that takes me. A couple of months. Uh, next year, I guess I probably need to set aside longer, probably three and a half months, something like that. And I'm also on tour for three to four months a year. So I basically have six months in every 12 to work on a book. And so of every 18 months I'm given to write a book, I only have nine. Wow. Um, not because I spend the rest of the time, you know, 
filing my nails on a chaise long uh, while consuming violet creams, but because I, I am always out doing another thing. So it's never one project, actually. It's always, you know, one book, yes, but additionally the radio series or the live tour or all of the above. So it's it's pretty frantic, but it's okay. Yeah, that's a lot to juggle. So I'm curious, like how you're writing now and when you started with your first nonfiction and fiction book, what mm. type of job were you working another job then? Were you doing... I know you said you were doing columns. What else were you kind of doing at that time? Yeah, that was pretty well it. I was just, I just sort of left doing stand up, um, which I had done for a long time. And it, it, it's a tough life, you yeah. know, it's a lot of travel um, and it's very gladiatorial. And I loved it and I, I don't miss it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, I was, I was finishing that up when I wrote um, Ancient Guide, I guess. And, and writing, uh, I wrote one or two columns a week. I did a lot of arts reviewing. Um, so I reviewed for the BBC um, on radio and on TV. Uh, and I reviewed for The Guardian. Um, I reviewed for The Indie uh, and various magazines also as a film reviewer for the Reader's Digest. So I was reviewing about 100 films a year at that time. Now I could easily, you know, see 10 films in a year and that would be it. <laughs> I'm always out on tour. It's like, how did that happen? But just, you know, I guess these are just different times in your life. So I reviewed a lot of theatre, a lot of uh, film um, and a lot of art, um, which I still love writing about now. Uh, and you can, I think you can feel all those influences through my nonfiction and and Divine Might, I think you can you can really tell this is somebody who loves talking about visual arts, who loves talking about cinema. Um, I'm so happy. It's such a happy place for me to be writing about, you know, um, something like The Hunger Games, both mm -hmm. on screen and, you know, in its books. And, and simultaneously, I'm just delighted to be able to tell you about, you know, this really battered sculpture of a goddess that, you know, is thousands of years old and why it's important, even though it looks like it's just, you know, a bashed up bit of marble, why it's not and why it's more than that. So um, it's, it's sort of strange. I didn't I didn't set out when I was doing all these things to have a kind of higher purpose. You know, as far as I was concerned, I just paid the bills by reviewing and it was fun. Um, but it turned out to be fantastically useful for the the nonfiction that I write now and actually also it's true with with Stone Blind and you'd think I would have noticed this sooner than I did but <laughs> um when I wrote Pandora's Jar the chapter on Medusa there is what started me on writing the novel um and I just you know I'd literally written the chapter it's, it's 10,000 words long 9,000 words long you'd think I would have registered how very little literary evidence there was and I simply had not <laughs> I literally written the chapter. And then when I sat down to write the novel, and in my defense, I was, you know, I was pretty sick with long COVID stuff at the time, but I don't know why it just hadn't entered my mind. But yeah, I sat down there. I was like, okay, here we go. Let's start. And I was like, well, wait, there isn't anything. Oh, well, when I get to this bit, no, hang on, there's not much. Here. So <laughs> the majority of, of Stone Blind is inspired by, by visual arts, by sculpture, and especially by vase paintings, far more than the, the literary sources. I mean, Ships is such a literary book, you know, it's in dialogue with, you know, Homer, with Euripides, with um, Ovid in particular, um, those three, but it, with multiple other sources and resources. And then, you know, Stoneblind comes along and it's in dialogue, as I say, with with a temple pediment. Well, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you followed more like the classics with Ships and with Stoneblind, you, you had to make it, make it up. <laughs> So which one do you prefer? Do you like finding that wiggle room to reinterpret classes? Uh, yeah, or? I mean, both. They have really, really different. Um, they were very different writing processes for me. Um, as I say, partly because I was very sick when yeah. I wrote Stone Blind. You know, there are some crippling headaches in Stone Blind and they are mine. You know, they are my symptoms of. And at one point, I think it's you says something I said to my own doctor, you know, when he's asked to describe the pain of the headache. Um, he says it feels as though my um brain were at war with my skull and and that was me i said that to my doctor who to be fair to him went right <laughs> so, yeah no that's fine um so it was just it was a very different process from ships ships was a, a really intense um interaction with all these books and poems particularly in plays that i'd been reading for for decades and and then stone blind was a much more visual you know at one point we were in lockdown and europe was in lockdown um, and we had just officially left the EU. So we just imposed loads of um, trade 
barriers for uh, no purpose at all. And I desperately needed photographs of a gigantic sculpture in Berlin. And I knew I couldn't get to Berlin because there were travel bans. I knew I couldn't get into the museum anyway because it was closed. Um, and I ordered a book um, on this sculpture that was only available in German, thinking there was no way I would ever see it because, you know, the newspapers here were full of stories of, you know, perfectly innocent small traders who were suddenly losing things for months at a time, you know, when they you could walk the damn thing from here to there and, and the time it was taking to get here. And and the book turned up like 24 hours later. You're just like, oh my God, German efficiency is so wow. <laughs> <laughs> So it was, it was a much more visual process, which was really different for me. I think it, when I started writing fiction, particularly, I, I could easily go through an entire scene without mentioning what anything looked like. You know, I was so focused on emotion and dialogue. And now I've I've kind of grown into it. You know, now I really enjoy it. And I spend loads of time telling you the, you know, the visual parts of a scene, but I didn't used to. I, I've learned how to. Nice. So um, you're pulling from the classics. You're pulling from visual arts. What about more contemporary yeah. authors? Are there anyone that you studied whose techniques you like that you've brought to your own work? Um, I always feel like a um, a big nerd saying it, but the person who has the person who set me on the on track to write classics retellings the way that I do is um, Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, yeah. Um, because although I do accept that he's dead, and <laughs> but by the standards of classicists, he's very modern. Right. That's what you have to understand. Most of my guys have been dead for 2,000 years. So only being dead for a few decades is basically contemporary, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but there's an incredible Borges story called The House of Asterion, uh, which is very, very short, and I am about to ruin it. So please, if you're listening, <laughs> stop listening for the next like three minutes. <laughs> And go and read it and then come back because I honestly, I wouldn't deprive you of the joy of reading this story for the first time. But here goes, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Um, it's a very short story and it, it it's the POV of a creature who is obviously terrified um, in a dark space, lonely, um, hungry, desperate, wretched. Um, and he's he feels that someone is coming and he's hoping they're going to sort of save him. And, uh, and then it, at the very end, it switches perspective. Um, and Theseus comes out of the labyrinth. We realize that Asterion of course is the Minotaur, um, his real name, Asterion. Um, and Theseus comes out of the labyrinth and he says, you know, would you believe Ariadne? He didn't even put up a fight. And it's like, Oh, you know, the thing that we've been made to think of as a, as a monster is a, is a, is a creature with feelings and and really complex feelings and we've just you know completely ignored that and that that absolute switch i i tipped my hat to it in um a thousand ships and only one person who's interviewed me has ever noticed that it happened um but at the end of the scene where penthesilea fights achilles the amazon warrior queen fights achilles the great greek warrior and he kills her at the very end of that scene. It's the only time in the whole book. In fact, I, I may be, it's a rash claim, but it may be true. It's one of the only times, it may be the only time in my books that you ever get a man's perspective. Um, it flips at the end of that chapter to Achilles and examines it from his POV. And it's my way of um, tipping my hat to that Borges story, which switches at the end of that that scene to Theseus. Yeah. Um, so it was it was really Borges who made me see both that you could put worlds into a few pages, something um, I think he is absolutely in, incomparable yeah. at, but that you could recalibrate a story, not just as I routinely do along the lines of gender, but also a, a question that came up throughout Stoneblind is what makes a monster? Um, and as far as I was concerned, Gorgons weren't monsters. They're still not monsters. Um, anything that has the power to kill you by looking at you and doesn't um, isn't a monster. It's something making a tremendous effort not to injure. Um, and I was literally right. I li was literally in the middle of writing the Medea chap uh, Medusa chapter, rather in um, Pandora's Jar, when I realised there was no there was no casualty list for when she's alive. The casualty list for after she's been killed and her head is used by Perseus as a weapon of mass destruction is tremendous, mm -hmm. an island of people at a time. But named casualties or unnamed even from when she has agency, there is none in any source that I could find. Um, so I started stone blind thinking, well, if you have this incredible power and you don't kill or even injure anyone with it, you must be 
really the opposite of a monster and the person who then turns you into a destructive force that person is probably the monster and so that was really the the feeling that I was going for with that with that book but it, it really does all stem back to the moment when aged about 21 or 22 I read um the house of Asterion and thought oh my god you know I've been looking at this the wrong way around um and uh yeah there aren't there aren't that many times I think in your life where you can say thanks to this piece of art I will never be the same again but it's happened to me a handful of times and it was it was true each time when I felt it it was it was accurate to that feeling love that and Borges is a beautiful writer for anyone who has oh not read him please do yourself a favor go read him yeah seriously yeah. <laughs> I you know that the, there is just there is there are worlds packed into sentences in in a way that it's impossible to it's, they carry so much weight and they they look so slender and i i'm still dazzled by him um even after all these years yeah and i love that it kind of uh shift your perspective on how myths might be reinterpreted so i want to talk a little bit about your new book divine might yes it is a female centered look at olympus and the furies it's highlighting the goddesses whose passion, power, rivals that of their male kin, often in explosive fashion. Yes. So uh, you're taking from the philosopher Xenophanes. Hopefully I said that right. Yes. <laughs> so you describe his postulate that we create gods that reflect us and we see ourselves. Yes, we do, according to him. Yeah, he says that if lion and oxen and horses had hands and could draw, their gods would look like lion and oxen and horses. And so the question that I posed in the introduction to Divine Might is, okay, because he's really specific, Xenophanes, he doesn't use, there are two Greek words, which we often translate as men um, or man, anthropos, which means man as opposed to God or animal, and ana, which means man as opposed to woman. Um, and he specifically uses uh, Andres, Anna, the the men rather than women, as opposed to men rather than gods or animals, um, people, I suppose is uh, probably more accurate. But anyway, um, and so it's it's a really interesting point. He doesn't say if people, um, if if lions had hands and could draw like people do, their gods would. He says it's like men do. And I thought, well, then the question is, what would gods look like if women drew them? Um, how would they be? And uh, I sort of have a little wander around uh, comic books because it felt to me like that when it began was such a male dominated industry. Um, and obviously the early characters that we know of, uh, the early superhero characters that, that we know, um, like uh, Batman and Superman. Um, it's like, well, what what happens when when women enter the picture? What happens when Wonder Woman arrives? And of course, it was very easy to find um, lots of examples of people sort of uh, treating her as somebody who should be sexy mm -hmm. um, or pretty before she should be powerful mm -hmm. um and while you might consider and certainly i have considered either superman or batman to be sexy that's not their you know usp that's not the first thing the first thing is their super and before everyone writes in i do understand that batman doesn't have superpowers he's just got a credit card thank you it's fine <laughs> he has a batmobile though so you know mix up he part. does yeah he's got gadgets he's paid for it <laughs> yeah. so fair do um so i i kind of thought well okay what what happens how do those characters change what happens when um, women imagine gods or goddesses. What would that look like? What would that be? Um, and then in the in the body of the book, I tried to to ask and answer those questions for for different goddesses. You know, when we have muses in ancient poetry, in particular, and art, um, they tend to have a collaborative role. If if anything, they have a, a superior collaborative role. You know, Homer's um, Great poems both begin with an appeal to the muses. Sing, goddess of the wrath of Achilles. Tell me, muse, about this turned about man, Odysseus. Um, Homer's really aware that if, if the muse doesn't inspire him, Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, or no, so people like to say Calliope, um, he doesn't have a poem at all, you know? So he's really got to get her on board. And then by the 20th century, of course, a muse basically just means a, a pretty woman who Picasso likes to paint. And it's like, well, that that is quite a downgrade <laughs> in terms of creativity. You know, being beautiful is something the muses always have going for them. But having creative agency is something that they simply shed through time. And it's like, well, why is that? You know, why does that happen? Why are male poets in the 18th, 19th century still appealing to muses to help them out? Um, 
what, what does it say about the poem? Um, what does it say about the poet that you're taking your work seriously, that you're taking yourself seriously? I think so. Um, but what does it say about the muses and what does it say about the way that we look at the world? How we imagine goddesses in different eras says as much about that era as it does about the goddess. So I felt like it was really interesting and important to ask those questions. And sometimes it took took me to somewhere really, you know, unexpected and, and fun. So um, I guess Artemis is the obvious example. You know, she's routinely shown as an archer in ancient art. Um, and the idea of the of the female archer is still incredibly popular, not just because of Hunger Games, but basically because of Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen is absolutely um, following that sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the tropes that we're, we attach to Artemis when we read about her in Greek and in Roman tellings, which is Diana usually, um, that she belongs in the woods or the trackless places, um, that she, you know, is queen of wild creatures, that she will kill them, as uh, hunt them and kill them, as as Katniss has to to survive. Uh, obviously, Artemis doesn't have to to survive. She's a goddess; she'll survive anyway. Um, but this is her area, and it, it's so similar. And then, you know, again, there was the Marvel show um, uh, following Kate Bishop taking on the role of being Hawkeye, and I was like, well, that is great. You know, this is why is it we're so interested in seeing women with these kind of incredible sharpshooter skills you know where does it come from why might it be interesting so yeah I never never know really at the start of a chapter I usually have an idea of what ancient sources I'm going to look at but I'm never really that certain of which you know there'll be some guaranteed things I'm like I can't wait to write about this modern thing but there are other things where they just unfold as I go along and you're like oh my god how did I not realize I was going to be writing about this and then it appears and you're like great yeah so in all your research um, what do you think is different about Greek mythology where the stories of women are the focus than the men? Different to different from, from um, looking at men as the focus. Yeah, I think um, probably the thing that is different about it is just that it's been in such short supply for such a long time. And it's not that it it was always like that. You know, the example I always give when people ask is we have eight extant tragedies about the Trojan War by Euripides seven of them have female title characters, seven, mm-hmm. seven of eight plays are named for the women in those plays. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's the opposite, I think, of what most people would assume. Um, when Ovid writes the Heroides, so several centuries later, um, at the end of the first century BCE, he focuses on the women who are abandoned by their menfolk in Greek myth. I adore the Heroides, a really important set of poems. Um, and it, it just makes you examine things that you thought you knew in a different way. So, you know, if you only read Homer, um, then, yeah, there's a heroic exploit mm-hmm. in book 10 of the Iliad. When Odysseus goes off on a night raid, uh, he and his friend uh, Diomedes trap a Trojan coming the other way. They torture him, essentially. They, I think, decapitate him. Um, and then they um, take his the information they glean from him and they kill uh, King Rhesus of Thrace. They steal his horses and so on. It's a, a fantastically um, heroic, terrifying, brilliant um, passage in the Iliad. But when Ovid takes it on and puts it in the mouth of Penelope, Odysseus, or as Ovid considers him, Ulysses, uh, his Roman name, um, when, when it's Penelope's perspective, waiting at home for her husband, then this you know, tremendously brave exploit suddenly becomes an act of aggression at his loved ones. You know, she specifically says, and this is 2000 years old, this poem, this isn't my, you know, anachronistic reading of it. She says, you know, oh, I bet you were really thinking about your (laughs) wife and son when you went out and did that, because, you know, it was really dangerous. What are you doing? She's devastated. You know, he, Troy fell 10 years earlier. Of course, Odysseus takes 10 years to get home. And she says, you know, for me, Troy still stands. And you realize that Ovid knew 2,000 years ago that women experienced war in a completely different way from men. Euripides knew even earlier in the 5th century BCE that women's experience of war was completely different. The, you know, the reason that he doesn't center any of his plays on the battlefield is because Homer did that already. The Iliad is great. We, we didn't need another, you know. Um, but, although obviously Quintus Manaeus also tremendous, but anyway, let's not go down that path too far. Um, but... What's dramatic for Euripides is off the battlefield. It's like in the build-up to the war. It's in the aftermath of the war. It's what happens when the soldiers decide they need to sacrifice a young girl in order to get the fair winter south to Troy. What happens after Troy has fallen to the women who survive? Um, 
you know, the, the kind of action sequence stuff that happens on the battlefield is is all well and good, but it has a really basic ending, which is one of these combatants will die, perhaps both, but definitely one. Whereas what happens to women after a war is lost, that is a question that you you can never answer in its entirety. So he knew that this is where the real drama could be found. And, and his work, his output shows that. And so I think when I look at goddesses or mortal women in Pandora um, and try to examine what um, their mythos is like or the stories that are told about them, the temples that are built to them, the artworks that are sacred to them, the people who prayed to them, which is often women, I, I feel like I'm just shining a light on stuff that was there the whole time. But we were looking over here, you know, we just we just weren't paying attention. And in some ways, there's it's kind of hard to see why, you know, the temple to Athene, the Parthenon, has defined Athens skyline for two and a half thousand years. You know, we recognize it as instantly as we recognize, you know, Sydney Opera House. It's it's like they, these are super recognizable skylines. So why have we spent so little time talking about Athena and what kind of goddess she is? And when we do, why am I always told? You know, I tried to buy a children's book for my niece about the goddess Athena a few weeks ago. And it just focuses on her father and not at all on her mother. And it's like, well, I, uh. <laughs> so, I put it back on the shelf, bought her a book of Roman Britain. Um, but, uh, you know, these these stories are right there and they were always right there. But I think because for, for a couple of hundred years of classical scholarship, you know, we we didn't have very many female classicists for a long time until the sort of second half of the 20th century. There were some brilliant outliers, of course, but they were vastly outnumbered. Um, and there are still, you know, I'm still looking at books that I own from when I was an undergraduate, which translate things in ways which they make you kind of gasp with their sexism. And you kind of, and I go back to the Greek or to the Latin, I'm like, is that in the original? And I was looking at it, it's like, nope, no, that's not ancient misogyny, of which there's plenty. That this is modern misogyny. This is from the 1990s or the 2000s. And it's like, I, I, I can't single-handedly strip that back. And luckily I won't have to, as I say, there are loads of brilliant people working in classics now, but I won't, I won't let it stand. Why would I? Yeah, fantastic. And I have taken up a lot of your time. So just as we come to a close. It was my pleasure. Yeah, I'd just like to ask you one last question. If you could af- offer some advice to new aspiring authors just getting started in their career, what would it be? Well, um, you really need to know it. Uh, if you're going to write it, point the first. Um, I think a lot of the time when people think they have writer's block, what they have is I didn't do enough reading or thinking yet block if if you're really struggling with a, a book a story a short story a piece of prose i i do see this doesn't work when you've got an essay deadline um but generally put it aside and work on something else you know when your brain has done the thinking the words are there um so do the research and uh and when you're editing i know you hate it we all hate it but read it aloud it's the most often given and least heeded advice, a creative writing teacher, a friend of mine tells me, but it's always true. That's where you pick up your ticks, your kind of verbal ticks. It's where you pick up repetitions that you didn't intend. It's where you pick up internal rhymes that you didn't want. Read it aloud. It, honestly, it is so much better to do it in your apartment on your own than it is to do it when you're reading the audiobook. <laughs> you think that, oh no, I didn't want that to happen. So yeah, take it from me. This is the better time to do it. I'm saving you from yourself. And by yourself, I of course mean myself. So I thought it was really interesting what Natalie said about not knowing when her material was going to land, even after all her experience with columns and as a comedian. What do you think about that? Have you ever had that experience? I think she should go ahead and ask people. All right, uh, let's pause. Tell me why that was funny. I I, I think that's a good (laughs) idea. (laughs) <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I guess that's why uh, we use alphas and betas, right? To make sure things are coming off the way that, that we think they're going to come off. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I think it says a lot for her originality though, right? Like if she's not, not sure, I mean, I, I, I can, I've got a lot of respect for, from that fact. I mean, I, I think if, if you, if you're not wondering that and you're just putting it out there and then chances are your, your materials kind of blah, you know, <laughs> like it, yeah. I, I, I feel like you have to put it out there and, you know, be willing to accept the fact that you're going to piss some people off and other people mm-hmm. are going to accept it and not really know exactly how it's going to land. 
the, the, the stuff that makes the most noise is the best. Can, can I just say, by the way, listening to this interview, she she's one of those writers that makes me feel like like I have not yet become a writer. That's what she makes <laughs> me feel like. Like it's holy, the accent, though, right? The accent is part what of it's it. the accent. Yeah. But just like her take, like the way she, I, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here, Christine. I don't want to get ahead of it. Go ahead. No. It was just the, I was just really impressed by like the way she goes about like the research and the mm-hmm. uh, take. To, she puts thought into it, you know. And, and yeah, she's got her own angle that she's definitely pursuing. Um, and I, but I don't mind it at all. And I, I, I find it fascinating. Like she is kind of trying to mine these stories that, that no one else has told. And, uh, but you know, listening to her describe everything she was doing, I'm like, man, I feel like I've never written a word in my life. (laughs) Well, have any of you guys honestly read like all, all the Greek tragedies and like all, you know, like that, that type of material? Like I, I, I haven't. And I read I've, a lot of Bullfinch when I was younger. I have also probably forgotten most of it, as I have with most things that I've read when I was younger. So I mean, I had to read the Iliad and things like that in my and Odyssey like English and, lit major. Yeah. So yeah, the Odyssey yeah. and everything. But. Yeah, yeah, same here. Like I, I read those, but like yeah, I didn't, I didn't chase any of it. And you know, honestly, like that's the origination of a lot of the storytelling that exists today. Like we really all should should be going back and 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 looking at that. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, I, I probably don't go back far enough. I'm going to say this. I started recently, like recently, like in the past three days, um, I came across a video on YouTube. A guy was talking about the Harvard classics, uh, and he had bought like the entire hard leather bound set and he's going to read through all of them. And I'm like, ah, oh, that sounds interesting. So I found it on, uh, I found like a collected version of it on Kindle. It's like 71 books for a dollar, you know? Uh, and so I started reading through those and I, I, I have to say like, I, I skipped all this stuff in, in like high school and stuff. Like I skipped reading the classics. I'm like, yeah, it's boring. And, uh, I only wanted to read sci-fi and things like that. But, uh, the more I read this stuff, the more I realize like I, I would have been a better writer sooner mm-hmm. had I read and really put my brain behind this stuff. So I, I, I think that's a good practice. Go, yeah. go read all Greek, you know, mythology, everything you can get your hands on. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting, like you said, that she shifted the focus, retelling it from the perspective of the goddesses. I think she said, we didn't need another odyssey. <laughs> Do you ever use that technique? Taking something that's known and changing the point of view. I have. And like that really jumped out at me when she started talking about it. Um, you know, you can take a, a lot of scenarios and just make a quick swap. Um, you know, like there's tons of serial killer novels out there. But, you know, the second you say, but the killer is a woman, you know, like all of a sudden that completely twists it's on, on, on its head. I mean, I, I did it with Caller's Game. Like I got halfway through the outline for Caller's Game. It's about a, a radio uh, DJ where somebody calls in and confesses to murder live on the air. And in my outline, I said, this is a, you know, Howard Stern type character. And that's kind of what I was chasing. Um, and then at some point I decided to make that Howard Stern type character a woman. And the second I did it, like it completely changed the dynamic of the story um you know which is a, a you know really fun way to, to change things up and it you, you don't have to go male and female with it um i've got another uh, another book that I, it's currently in the pipeline um i wrote probably half the outline and the lead character was a, a cop that just kind of got caught up in a, a weird circumstance and then i got you know about the midway point on the outline and i said you know this would be a lot more fun if i made this person a plumber you know, so like all of a sudden, you know, because like all these skill sets that we're used to seeing from a cop, you know, like it just becomes secondary nature. But like if you make a plumber do some of these things, all of a sudden it just adds this other dynamic to it. Um, so, you know, you've got a story that's just kind of fallen flat or just feels like it's missing something. Try doing that. You know, what happens if I change this character from A to B, you know, yeah. to see what happens with it? Yeah, that's that's good advice. I I, I, I have never I've never taken a, an existing story. I don't think I, I can't think of any where and and swap the point of view or anything. Uh, but I did do kind of what JD did with uh, I had plotted out what as much as Kevin plots. Uh, <laughs> I, I had an idea and and I wrote a treatment for a story um, that was a male protagonist. But when I started writing it within the first couple of chapters, I realized like this would be much more fun if this was a female protagonist. So I went and kind of tweaked and rewrote, kept the name because it was a gender neutral name, but the, that, that was the basis of the whole, my whole like Quake Runner uh, series. And it ended up being a lot more fun because, you know, now I have this strong female lead and I get to tell a different kind of story than what I, what I tell over and over again in my other books. So 
maybe I'm not qualified to tell that story though. That's what I'm, that's what I get told. From that's time a whole to time. other podcast. So. That's a different show. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all about the editing. Yeah. Need, yeah. need the right editor. Yeah. I also thought it was pretty cool that uh, Natalie uses art to inspire her work. That's something I used to do, but I've kind of forgotten about that. Sometimes when I get stuck, I would open an art book and look at the art. Is that anything that you do? No, that sounds a lot like procrastination to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go look at the shiny thing in the It's corner. only procrastination if you stop at, I looked at the art to inspire the work. If you didn't actually write the book. <laughs> I, I guess if you go back and actually yeah, finish up the book, it's okay. Um, I, I try to do, I, I try to avoid anything that just takes me away from my computer screen while I'm, you know, like I, I will sit there and stare at a blank screen for two hours before I'll get up and, you know, Google or empty the dishwasher or, or do one of those other things that, you know, kind of calls out to you when you can't find the right word. Um, cause I, I tend to, you know, if I, if I force myself to do it, the right word will eventually come. Um, but you know, everybody's different. You know, there, there's plenty of times yeah. where, you know, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people where they just, they step away, they take a week off, you know, all of a sudden everything comes together in their head and they sit back down and get right back to it. So yeah, yeah. everybody's different. Neil Gaiman does something similar to what you just described. Like he, he has this rule, I'm going to butcher it, but he has this rule. It's like he can sit in that space and if he doesn't write a word, that's fine, but he's not leaving until the time's up. So yeah. he's like, this is this is the time for this, and and more times than not, he ends up doing the actual writing during that time. The approach of like looking at artwork and trying to like get that inspiration or that spark reminds me a lot of like how I sometimes use tarot cards uh, as a reference to either get moving or or if I'm paused for a minute. Um, I I have the easy cards that have certain words on them, so that I don't even have to flip through a book. I can just flip a card, read a couple like inspiration words or whatever it's supposed to mean look at the artwork and then keep going um but th that's kind of like the the way that i like to use artwork and or tarot for that kind of matter yeah i'll do that in bookstores i'll i'll, I'll go through bookstores you know when I, when i'm not on writing time and i'll just browse titles and covers and things and like i'm not gonna plagiarize someone's work or anything let's just get that out of the way <laughs> but uh <laughs> and i don't steal their titles or anything like that but i might pick up a book that I think is visually has a great cover and I, and I'll tell the story of that cover in my head. It's usually nothing at all like what they wrote. And then I've had that inspire several things, short stories and novels like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like looking at bizarre art, like try picking up some Andrew Wyatt or some Chet Zar and <laughs> you'll have some fever dreams. You'll get down on the page for sure. Cool. Well, we're running out of time. Anything else anyone wanted to touch on before we wrap up? I said everything I came to say. Well, that's perfect. That's what we want. <laughs> this is your last chance to talk for 2023. So oh, man. Out. Yeah. 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 Oh. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> yeah. This And this show airs on what day? What The, the first. This is on, the on first. Monday. First. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Monday's the first. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Monday's the yeah. first. Happy New Year, so, everybody. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year hangover, everybody. What the hell are you doing <laughs> listening to the Writers Inc. podcast on New Year's Day? Go. Get outside. Come Perfect. have some fun. And with that, JD, who's up next week? Oh, man. Uh, next week, we've got Matthew Blake coming on. He's a London-based novelist and screenwriter. He's going to be here to discuss his debut thriller. It's called Anna O. Um, this book has a really unique premise. Uh, if you haven't had a chance, just hop on on, on the, the interwebs and just take a look at, at what the book is about. Um, it, you know, Not only is it a unique story idea, but you know, from an author's standpoint, this one sold a lot. Um, I, I believe he sold you know seven figures for screen rights, for print rights in you know, multiple countries. Um, this is going to be a big title. <clears throat> Anna O and Matthew Blake next week. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersinkpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.